um, thousands are chasing after revival at the moment. In case you haven't heard, there's an extraordinary event happening at Asbury University in Kentucky. Um, God is moving powerfully, and students have gathered for chapel one day and uh, remained behind to seek the Lord in prayer. And at that prayer meeting, the Lord fell in power, and it's now continued for 13 or so days. Uh, there weren't any fancy speakers. There weren't any profound messages from the pulpit. It was just an atmosphere of nonstop prayer and worship that made room for the Holy Spirit uh, to move upon his people. I believe that prayer is central for experiencing revival. If you study any great revival in church history, you will find them rooted and established in committed prayer. Behind every revival of the past are men and women who began to seek God with all of their hearts and all of their souls, desperate for more of him. They were calling on him in prayer with persistence and with insistence. And, and, and so I want to speak to you tonight on the topic of prayer. Sadly, I believe that one of the reasons we are not seeing revival in our land is because so many of us in the church today do not have an appetite for prayer. Jim Simbola says, if our churches don't pray and if people don't have an appetite for God, what does it matter how many are attending the services? How would that impress God? If we don't want to experience God's closeness here on earth, why would we want to go to heaven anyway? He is the center of everything there. If we don't enjoy being in his presence here and now, then heaven would not be heaven for us. Why would he send anyone there who doesn't long for him passionately here on earth? I love that quote. He's the center of everything here. If we don't enjoy being in his presence here and now, then heaven would not be for us. Prayer is spending time in his presence. And that's what I'd like to talk to you about tonight. Would you just pray with me, though, before we, get, we begin? Father God, I just thank you and I praise you for who you are. I thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness to us for your unconditional, unfailing love. Thank you that you don't give up on us, that you pursue us. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you that you don't treat us like our sins deserve. Thank you that you're with us like a mighty warrior. We lift your name up in this place and we magnify your name above every issue that walked through that door, every concern, every worry, every heartache, every heartbreak. Father, we lift your name, we magnify your name, we praise your name in this place. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We thank you for your presence in and among us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that, that you dwell in your people, that, that you tabernacle in your people. Lord, that you are here among us tonight. 
night. I pray that you'd fall like fire and descend like rain, that you would open up our eyes to see you more clearly, that you would inhabit the praises of your people, and that you would just dwell among us in power tonight. Manifest your presence here, Lord. Manifest your presence here. Open up our hearts to your word. Let us see what we haven't seen before. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. I want to know you better. Help me to preach you better tonight, Lord God. I thank you that it's not by might and it's not by power. It's by your Holy Spirit. We make room for your spirit in this place tonight. Have your way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles tonight, you can open them to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. I'm just going to read one verse. I know that surprises you, but one verse. Now it came to pass, as he, Jesus, was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer is a basic necessity in a believer's life. A man needs prayer like he needs the next breath he takes. Prayer is a channel of communication between man and God. It's communicating with God who is our life. It's going to the source of life. For some of us, it's difficult for us to know how to communicate with God. That's why we don't pray more, because we don't know how to pray. We don't even know where to begin. We're, we're not sure how to even speak his language. My 13-month-old granddaughter uh, called me, FaceTimed me with my son this week. And, and, and she is uh, she's just a spitfire. And, and she's just learning to, to communicate, and she loves it. And she called me, and, and he said, Mom, watch this. And he pointed to a picture that was hanging on the wall of her brother when he was a baby. And he said, Frankie, look, who's this? And she said, said BB and then she looked in the phone and she caught a glimpse of Dave and she said pop up and, and Dave just grinned ear to ear and, and and then Tyler gave her a cookie and he said say thank you and she said thank you just as clear as could be my grandma's heart just began to just I was cheering I was clapping for her and she was so pleased that she was able to communicate with me, that she was starting to speak my language. She's still a baby, but she's learning to speak my language, and she loves it. She can connect with me at a different level, and I, I wonder if anybody here tonight can identify with that. You want to communicate with God, but you're not really sure how to speak his language, and you feel like baby Frankie. That you have a couple words that you can talk to him. And he's so delighted that you even want to connect with him. But you feel inadequate. I think the disciples felt that way as well. They were with Jesus one day and they realized how inept they were in their attempts to communicate with the Father. They listened to how he communicated to the Father and it made them realize and conclude that they were, there were places of ignorance still in them about how to pray. They were so enraptured listening to Jesus' ability to pray that their only recourse was to exclaim, Lord, teach us to pray. There was something in the way that Jesus prayed 
that was much deeper than what they were experiencing in their own prayers. I want you to notice that they didn't say, Lord, teach us how to do miracles. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to preach. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. They were watching Jesus, and they noticed that his ability to perform miracles, his ability to preach, his ability to do anything well, which he did everything well, was directly connected with his time in prayer. And so their only recourse was to say, Lord, teach us. We, we don't know how. Teach us to pray. How about you? Is that your desire too? <laughs> I want to share with you a plan tonight, and, and I'm, I'm hesitant. I was praying with the team last night, and I said to them, I'm hesitant to even do this because I, I don't want you to take what I'm going to say tonight and make it into a formula. Sometimes we, we use the Lord's Prayer and we make that into a formula. Uh, well, we're, you may be tempted tonight to take what I, what I want to teach you and, and turn it into a formula, these the steps that you have to do every day. And it's not that at all. Please don't get bogged down in the formula. But I want to share with you something that has uh, probably, uh, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago radically changed my prayer life. And I believe that it will change yours as well. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Exodus 25, Exodus chapter 25. I want to read just verses 8 and 9. And let them make me, this is God speaking, a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. This is God speaking. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was his dwelling place. It was the dwelling place of God. And he said to Moses, I want to come down there and dwell among my people. And, 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 and I want to, to be with them. I want to meet with them. The God of the universe wanted to dwell among his people and commune with them. His desire was for fellowship, and he initiated that plan. I want you to, to see that. It has always been God seeking us out, longing for relationship and connection to his people. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place in which God descended to meet with his people. And then in the New Testament, we see that Jesus fulfilled that role himself. Turn over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 Verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwell means tabernacled. What it means is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus, God, became flesh. He came to earth and he dwelt, he tabernacled among us. And he did that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Do, do you see? The Bible says that you and I are the temple, the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. Turn over to Colossians 6, 19. It says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You and I are the dwelling place of God. Jesus came to tabernacle in us 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. The same glory that dwelt in the Old Testament tabernacle, the Shekinah glory, now dwells in you and in me. We are a portable tabernacle of the glory of God. In the Old Testament, the priests would enter the tabernacle and they would go through seven stations to get to, the, to the, the presence of God. It was a pattern to approaching God in the Old Testament. And that's what I want to teach you uh, from tonight. I, I believe that, that while we no longer have a physical tabernacle where we meet with God, I believe these same steps can help us connect with, with, with the Holy Spirit living within us. Uh, Lynn, do you have that first picture of the tabernacle? I just want to go over this briefly. Some of you have, have been with me as I've, I've, I've taught on the tabernacle in years past. I, it's one of my favorite books to study is, is uh, Exodus. But, but here the tabernacle is again. Again, it was God meeting with his people as they went through the wilderness uh, after they left Egypt on their way to the promised land. This was the way he dwelt among them. We see the same layout in the, in the temple uh, as we go through the Old Testament as well. But, but we're going to talk about the tabernacle, the portable uh, sanctuary of God. And this is how it was laid out. You can see that there, was, uh, there were three sections of the, the, the tabernacle, um, the, the outer courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And then you can see here on the very end, the entrance gate. Uh, it is, you, there was a gate that, that you entered. It was surrounded by white linen curtains. And there was one gate, one entrance gate that you could come in. And then you approach the altar of burnt offerings. That was a, the largest piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It was, a, it was almost like an obstacle that you had to get through. It, was, it stopped you in your tracks. You could not get into the, the, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, unless you went there first. And then from the burnt offering, uh, you went to the laver. And the laver, you see there's a door then as you enter into the holy place. In the holy place, there was a lampstand or a menorah. There was a table of showbread. There was an altar of incense. Then there was another veil. The veil, behind the veil, began the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant with the Shekinah glory. Do you see how it is a, it is a, a steps to get to the Shekinah glory? I would go so far as to say to you, maybe offensive, it's never stopped me before, but most Christians live in that outer courtyard. Most Christians never get to the place of encounter, to the place of presence. I believe that's why we don't long for prayer more, because we never were so quick to leave that place of prayer, and we never get to the place of encounter, the place of presence, the place where the Holy Spirit falls in your life, and you encounter him, and the Shekinah glory falls. We're outer courtyard dwellers. And so I just want to talk to you a bit about, about the, the tabernacle tonight. And so let's start with that gate, uh, because there's only one entrance to this whole tabernacle, and that was through the gate. That was, that was the, the way in which the people could access the presence of God. Do you see it? The priests who were accessing the presence of God had to come through that gate. Uh, John 10, 9, Jesus himself says, I am the gate. 
Whoever enters through me shall be saved. Jesus describes himself as the gate. Only one entrance to the presence of God and it's through Jesus. When I pray, I pray in Jesus' name. Some of you pray to Jesus. Some of you say Holy Spirit. But the Bible says that you do not have access to God except through Jesus. I say, Father, I come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. I have access to the Father through Jesus. Do you see it? And so he is the gate. He is the entranceway to the presence and the power, the glory of God. He is the only way. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Lynn, that slide that I added at last minute that shows the way, the truth, and the life, can you put that one up? So if you divide this, see how the way is the entrance, the truth, we're going to enter into the truth, and then the life. Do you see how, how the, each of those, the gate is the way, the door is coming into the truth, and the life is the, what's behind that veil. And we're going to see that as we walk through it. I know this is going to be like drinking water out of a fire hydrant, but I promise you it's good, and we can stay here as many weeks as you need to stay to really get this, but it's good stuff. So the Israelites always entered the tabernacle with thanksgiving and praise. Mari didn't, without knowing what I was teaching tonight, uh, reference that scripture. Psalm 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. When I begin my prayer, remember, I'm giving you a pattern of prayer using the tabernacle. And so when I begin my prayers, I, I begin it, Father, I come to you in the mighty name of Jesus, thanking you and praising you, Lord, for who you are, thanking you and praising you for, for, for being a mighty God. For, and I just begin to thank him and praise him. I begin to praise his name. I, I start listening. You're the alpha and the omega. You're the beginning and the end. You, you are a good, good father. And I, I just begin to praise him for who he is. Not asking him for anything at this point. I'm just entering the gate, that gate with thanksgiving. And his courts, I'm getting into that court with praise. Giving thanks for his name, for who he is. His name is his character. It's his reputation. It's what he's known for. That's why we need to study the names of God because it's, it's what he's known for. And I begin to just name off some of the names of God. Often when I'm praying with the team, I'll be like, let's just, let's just put some names of God out into the atmosphere. Let's just praise him for who he is. And I'll just say, we'll just start naming some names of God and, and, and putting, give him thanks for who he is. So we enter his courts with thanksgiving, or his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And uh, scripture says that we give thanks in all circumstances, even when you don't feel like it. You give thanks and you, you praise his name. After we get through that gate with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, we, we get to that outer court. And uh, that, that outer court has two pieces of furniture in it, a brazen altar and a laver. Now, the brazen altar is the first thing that you come through to as you get there. And the altar, as you know, is a place of sacrifice. It's the place of shedding blood. Hebrews 9.22 says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. My favorite translation says there is no remission of sins. 
The Israelites knew that, and, and they, they knew that their, their sins needed to be atoned for, that the wrath of God would fall on them if they didn't provide a sacrifice, a substitution for their own life. There had to be blood shed. And so, so rather than take their blood to punish them for their sin, they would bring an animal to sacrifice on their behalf. That animal would be their substitute. They would give it to the priest. He would, he would slaughter it on that, that altar, and, and the blood would be shed, the blood would flow. There'd be a crimson flood of blood, a river of blood coming out of the, out of the tabernacle. And it was a place of substitution, a place of, of sacrifice, of shedding of blood. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb, made a once and for all sacrifice and took our sins upon himself and gave us his righteousness. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him on the cross of Calvary. For it, not, it is by grace that we've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died the sacrificial lamb, just as lambs and sheep had died on that brazen altar uh, more than a thousand years before him. He was our substitute. He was our sacrifice. And so when I'm praying and I've entered his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, I've given thanks into his name, I stop at that brazen altar and I begin to just thank him for what he did for me on the cross of Calvary. Thank you that you saved me. Thank you that you snatched me from the muck and the mire and you put my feet back on solid ground. Thank you that it's not by works. I don't have to work for this, Lord. I receive that gift. It's a gift of grace. Thank you that you graced me, Lord. Thank you that, that I deserved hell, but you gave me heaven. And I begin to thank him for that. Notice the placement of that altar. No one could proceed through the tabernacle into the presence of God without going by that altar. And the same is true of you and me. We all must come through the cross of, of, of Calvary, through, through Jesus. No man comes to the Father except through him and what he did on the cross of Calvary. Remember, the whole purpose of the tabernacle was encounter. It was to encounter the presence of God. And the only reason we can come into the presence of God is because of the sacrifice Christ made on the cross of Calvary. Lynn, do you have the picture of the cross at the tabernacle? Uh, this is how the camp was set up for the Israelites. See the cross? So the, the, the tabernacle was in the middle, and then each of the tribes were set up around the outside like that. That's how they were set up. And it was a picture. This is before Christ came. And already we see the symbolism uh, there on the cross of Calvary. So in prayer, we come and we pause and we reflect on what's accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary. But remember that the, the, the bronze altar was continual. There's a fire continually burning on that altar. This altar represented death. Here on the brazen altar, not only do we thank the Lord for what he did for us, but we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. When he died, I died. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So whenever I come into that outer court, I'm laying my life down. I'm giving up my life and picking up my cross. I'm putting to death my animalistic nature and the holy fire of God purifies me and burns away my, uh, my Adamic nature, my flesh. 
Paul says, I die daily. At the brazen altar, we lay down our life and we die daily. As I'm going through the tabernacle in my, in my mind, as I'm praying, I get through his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, I give thanks to his name, I thank him for what he did on the cross of Calvary, and then I'm mindful. I am mindful that this is my turn to die, and that I have to be purposeful about putting my flesh to death. Lord, I, you know, I just want to, yeah, I just am purposeful. I'm purposeful about dying to self, dying to my rights, dying to having to have it my way, dying to having to have the last word. I'm dying daily, and I'm picking up obedience to him. This was built to specifications. God was very, very specific, and he said, make sure you build this to to, to specifications because it's going to be a pattern of, of things to come. But you need to know that that altar was the largest piece of furniture in this whole tabernacle. All the other pieces of furniture in the tabernacle could have fit inside this altar. That's how big it was. One, uh, one commentator, uh, his last name is Mangan, says, we want big arcs, arcs but we, want little, we build little, little altars. I loved that. Because what we want is this glory out here. This is what we're headed towards. I want glory. I want to encounter presence. I want the glory of the Lord to fall. But I want a little tiny altar. I don't want to have to die daily. I want big glory, but a little altar. And God was purposeful. He said, if you want glory, you have a big altar. Death becomes central in your life. The bigger the altar, the more power and glory that manifests. Repentance happens at the cross. There is no glory without repentance. You can't bypass any of these stations and get to the Holy of Holies. The steps that the priests had to take, they had to stop at each of these stations to get to that Holy of Holies. Nothing could be skipped. And we like to kind of skip this one. So turn over to Exodus 30, verses 17 through 21, because the next one we get to is the laver. Scripture says that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. Now remember, Aaron and his sons were priests. So lest you're thinking, Rhea, this doesn't apply to us because this was only the priests that got to, to go into the holy place and only high priests once a year that got in to go to the most holy place, place, lest you forget that you are called a holy priesthood, that you are priests before the Lord. And so this very much applies to you. So, so picking back up about the labor, when they go into the tabernacle of meeting and when they come near the altar to minister, to burn, a, uh, burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. So in order to perform their duties, the priests had to stop here. They had to wash in the laver before they went any further. Notice that, that it was repeated twice in this passage by God, lest they die. Failure to wash at the laver meant death. And for you and I, 
It doesn't mean a physical death. It means a spiritual death. Some of you are sitting here tonight miserable, depressed, in despair, hopeless, you know, pity party of one. And it's because you, you are not washing. You're not spending time washing in his presence. You're not learning to die daily. And you're miserable because you've made it about you and not about him. Ephesians 5.26, talking about Christ and the church, it says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. We get washed in the word of God. The word washes over us. The laver was a place of cleansing and reflection. Exodus 38.8 says that the lavers, that, that laver, that place where they washed was made out of the mirrors of the women of Israel. When they came out of Egypt, out of captivity, that they took plunder. The Egyptian women gave them their mirrors. Women, would you sacrifice that? That's a huge sacrifice. And, and they gave them their mirrors of polished bronze. And so bronze, would they could catch their reflection in that, so they used them as mirrors. And so the women, when it came to building the sanctuary, what the sacrifice the women would give is they gave up their mirrors to build this, this labor. And so it was made of polished bronze. So every time the priest would go to that laver, they would lean over to wash their hands and they would catch their reflection in the laver. Jesus. The Bible says in the book of James, he says the Bible is a mirror for you and I. That we come to the, to the, to the word of God and it reflects back to us what we look like. If I, have, if I go to the mirror tonight, I didn't have time to get a shower before I came here. And I, I got up and I, I looked in the mirror in the bathroom and I said to Dave, I don't have time. And I looked and I had mascara down my cheeks. My, my eyes were all smudged. And, and I thought, I have, to I have to get that off my face. When I go to the mirror of God's word, I catch a glimpse of myself. I look into his holiness, and I catch it. And it's not condemning. It's not to condemn me. It is just to reflect back to me, Rhea, why would you want that smudge in your life? It's messing you up. Why would you want to clean it up, wash it away? Let me wash it. Let me wash it. So I've entered his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. I've given, I've, pray, I've, I've given thanks to his name. I've presented myself as a living sacrifice. I've chosen to die daily. I've praised him for, for what he did for me on the cross of Calvary. I'm aware of what he accomplished for me on the cross of Calvary and what's mine because of it. And now I'm getting to the labor and I catch a glimpse of myself as I open up the word to study, to, to, to reflect. I'm still in prayer and I'm reading through the word. But last night the team had a time of prayer and Mari came and she said, sitting on the floor just going through the word of God she was praying and yet she was in the word of God that's part of prayer washing with the word once you start looking into the word you're comparing yourself to the standard of God's holiness the, the word is a mirror that shows us how we need to change and, and where we need to be cleaned up you say, well, Rhea, I, I was saved, I was covered with the blood of Jesus, I've been forgiven and set free. I, I don't need to wash. <laughs> I don't need to wash. I've already been forgiven, past, present, and future. Yes, you, you have. Past, present, and future. But, but here's just the sad part. It, sadly, so many people today believe that once you're a Christian, you don't need to repent because you're already saved. But read 1 John 1.9. It says, if we, he's including himself, 
confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess means to say the same thing as, to agree with God. You see, we gain a clear conscience when we come into agreement with God and calling our sin what he calls it. It's, it's not that I haven't already been forgiven for that. It's just that that sin, Jesus said to Peter, you don't need a bath. You just need to wash your hands and your feet. You don't need a complete bath. When I came to Jesus, I got a complete bath. I got cleansed from head to toe. The Holy Spirit came and dwelled within me. But I'm telling you, when I walk through this world, I get dirty hands. I pick up dirt, dust on my feet. And Jesus said, you see, wash your feet. Just wash your hands. In the labor, they wash their feet and their hands. You say, well, Rhea, I'm forgiven, past, present, and future. I know, and it's a beautiful thing. If you'd only know what I've been forgiven for, you would realize how much I understand that. But you see, when, when I defilement interferes with my relationship with Jesus, it's the difference between position, and condition. You say, when I came to Christ, I was justified. It's just as if I've never sinned. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He, he sees the blood of Jesus. He, it's like looking through a pink balloon. If I looked at Leslie through a pink balloon, I, I, Leslie would be pink. And when God looks at me, he looks at me through Christ and the sacrifice he, he made on the cross of Calvary for me. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's who I am. That's my position. But my condition <laughs> doesn't always line up with that. That's how God sees me. But my, my condition is something different. And, and that's why I, I, I wash. I wash. I come to that labor for an honest appraisal of my life. And I wash. I'm clean because of the blood of Jesus, but as I walk through life, I get muddied. Like a child who disobeys, the disobedience brings discipline, but it doesn't change the fact that they're a son or a daughter. Part of the family doesn't mean their parent doesn't love them. That's what Jesus was saying to Peter. When we believe in Christ, we are made clean. However, there are times when we sin and we grieve the Spirit of God, and when we do, that needs to be cleaned up. We grieve the Spirit of God. The Bible says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, malice, and slander, and every form of criticism be kind be kind church oh my goodness hear me say be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as Christ and God forgave you do not grieve the Holy Spirit people say I've been in I, I'm a charismatic to the core and I've, I've been in services where people have said oh they just grieve the Holy Spirit let's get scriptural clear what does scripture say that we do that grieves the Holy Spirit? Bitterness, rage, and anger, malice, and slander, and every form of criticism. When we're not kind and compassionate to one another. When we don't forgive each other the way Christ forgave us. My hands get dusty when I grieve the Holy Spirit. And when I go to that labor to wash, it's not because I have to get saved all over again. I'm saved. Nothing can snatch me out of his hand. But my hands are dirty. And the Bible says, who can ascend the high hill of holiness? Who can come into his holy place? Only him with clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift his hand to an idol.
That's who gets to go there. I don't know about you. I don't want to be in the outer court. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be, I'm going to heaven. Praise the Lord. I'm going to heaven. I can live like hell to get there, but I'm going to heaven. I, I, don't, I have no interest in that. Who can go to his holy place? Who can ascend to the holy place? That's that middle part right there. Who can get closer to his presence? <laughs> Clean hands and a pure heart. And those who do not lift their hand to an idol. Those are the people that get close to his presence. So you don't have to wash if you don't want to. But I want encounter. I want glory. It's at the labor that we recognize our need of purification. Ray, Ray, Ray Steadman, one of my favorite commentators, say, enjoyment of our relationship with Christ is lost when we are temporarily defiled by wrongdoing in our life. We lose the enjoyment of our relationship with him. His attitude towards us doesn't change, but our attitude towards him does. That's why we're taught all through the scriptures to confess our sin, and the moment we do, that original cleansing is renewed in us, and we go on again restored. The labor is a place to check our motives, to examine our hearts, and to surrender our life afresh to the Lord. And that's a, an important part of, of prayer. And, and so as I enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, I give thanks to his name. I, I thank him for what he did on the cross of Calvary, what he accomplished for me on the cross of Calvary. I die daily. I present myself as a living sacrifice. I, I let his all-consuming fire consume my flesh at that point. And then I get up and I get to that labor and I begin to wash with his word. I, 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 I quote his word back to him. Lord, I just thank you that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Father, I just thank you that I don't have any bitterness, rage, or anger inside of me. I just give it all to you right now. Just ask you to cleanse me, Lord. Examine my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me, Lord. And, and I just begin to sit and sit with the word and wash with the word. And after I pass through the laver and, and stay there for a little while and, and wash, I get to the door. See the door right there. The door symbolizes, again, Jesus. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, delivered, set free, and, and will go in and out and find pasture, find a resting place. Oh, Jesus, this is the, the resting place right here. Again, we can't approach God without going through Jesus. We see it again there. But it's behind this second door or veil that we will experience the truth. I am the way, the truth. This door is the door to truth. Don't miss that. In the holy place, the, the, the tabernacle had those three compartments. We're now entering that holy place. Um, the holy place, Lynn, you should have one that's a body. Um, if you're looking at man's body, remember when I did the circle illustration, body, soul, and spirit, I believe, you can argue with me, I'll argue with you about it because I have studied it, but I believe that we are created in his image and in his likeness. God is a triune God, and I believe that we are triune people. We, we have a body, uh, we, we, we are a spirit, we live in a body, and we have a soul. I, I'll argue it till I'm blue in the face. There's a scripture that says uh, that, that, that you, you will um, be perfected body, soul, and spirit. 
And so I can argue that one. But remember my circle illustration. So the body is that outer court. The soul now is going to be addressed in the inner court. And the spirit, of course, is, is the Holy of Holies. And you know we talked about how we, when we come to, to Christ, we are sealed for the day of redemption. Nothing can snatch us out of his hands. You're, what The Holy Spirit comes and lives within you, in your spirit, and, and you're sealed in your spirit. Okay? But... What needs to be renewed? My mind. I'm transformed by the renewing of my mind. The soul is the mind, the will, my emotions. I'm going to tell you that needs some work in my life, even after I came to Jesus. So people come to Christ, and the next day they're as ugly as they were the day before, and they say nothing's changed. No, you were sealed. Your spirit man got sealed. You were made new in, in, in your spirit man. Your spirit man got born again. But now your soul needs some work. It is the inner court where your soul is going to get some work here. And so let's look at that inner court. In the inner court, there were three pieces of furniture. Uh, back to that uh, diagram. Yeah, three pieces of furniture. The lampstand, the, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. The, the lampstand uh, was on the left side in the holy place. You need to know that it was the only light in the holy place. Uh, the, the, there were skins that covered um, the, the, the holy place, and so there was no natural light that came in. So this lampstand was the only light uh, that, that was in the holy place, and that's important. Because without it, the priest would not be able to see what they were doing. They would stumble in the darkness. And so, so God instructed the priest to keep that lamp burning at all times, continuously. In, in Exodus 27, verses 20 and 21, we see where he says, Cause the lamp to burn continuously. Tend it evening until morning before the Lord. So the lampstand symbolic of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our life. <laughs> Can I tell you, without his illumination in my life, I am stumbling in the darkness. Without his anointing in my life, I can't understand the word of God. I can't pray. I can't do anything. And so that lampstand is so important. And spending time in prayer and the word of God replenishes the oil in our life. The, the priests were, were instructed to keep that oil replenished. The Bible says, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a continuous, ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. I have to be purposeful of that. I can't just say, God, could you just, you know, here I am, I'm in church, can you? We, we have to be purposeful to go and, and pray and seek his face and say, Lord, I, I want you to fill me afresh with your sweet Holy Spirit. But I got to get through all those stations to get to that place because unless I'm coming to him with clean hands and a pure heart, I cannot. The Bible says, how do I send into that holy place? Only him with the clean hands and pure heart. I was, I was, Dave preached on Sunday and I gave a benediction and the Lord brought to mind the parable of the virgins with the lamps and, and how, um, the, you know, God is coming, but Jesus is coming back and, and five of the, the virgins had oil in their lamps and their, their wicks trimmed and the other one had lamps without oil. And the, the note in my Bible said that lamps without oil is a picture of pro profession without relationship. So many of us are professing believers, but we don't know anything about Holy Spirit and His power. 
We don't have intimate relationship. We don't have connection. We're not, my mom used to say, Rhea, position yourself under the spout where the glory comes out. <laughs> we haven't positioned ourselves under the spout where the glory comes out. We're lamps without oil, a profession without relationship. So the lamp is on the left side. On the right side is the table of showbread. And the showbread represents, oh my goodness, we're short on time, represents Jesus Christ who calls himself the bread of life. And it's here that we receive nourishment and sustenance for life. Um, he is bread that we cannot live without. Jesus states in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of this world. So John 1.1, 1, 1, you know this scripture, in the beginning was the word. So Jesus calls himself the word. He is the logos, the, 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 the living, uh, he, is, he's the, he is the living word. And, and, and then he says later, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every Word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Guess what that word is that Jesus uses to describe him, to describe the word of God? Rhema. So what happens, I was talking to John. I see John is here. I was talking to him yesterday. I know you cannot fake intimacy. Can I just tell you? You can't fake it. There are a lot of people that want to fake intimacy. I've been with the Lord, and, and, but you can't fake intimacy. And I talked with him five minutes, and I knew that man knew Jesus. I, I knew it because he said to me, Rhea, I get up in the morning, and I get my cup of coffee, and, and I go to the sofa, and Jesus is there waiting for me. And I just open that word, and I can just sense his presence there. And he's telling me, and he has tears in his eyes. Tears are in, in my eyes streaming down because I'm understanding what he's talking about. I know what, what he's experiencing there because what he's doing is he's reading the Logos. He's reading the written Word of God, but he has an encounter with the living Word of God. And all of a sudden, there's rhema that takes place. There's an understanding, an encounter that takes place. The written Word becomes the living Word. And that's what happens when there is encounter, and you can't fake that. But that's what we're, that's what we're aiming for here. He says, I am the bread of life. Where I get my sustenance is right here in this word every morning. I can't wait to get out of bed. Poor Dave is like, just stay in bed, Rhea. And I'm like, I got to go be with Jesus. I got to get up because if I wait till everybody else is up, my whole day is ruined because I didn't get my Jesus time. So when I sit and I open up the bread of life, the word, and the, the Holy Spirit, I invite the Holy Spirit to come and illuminate Illuminate his word. Shine your light on your word, Lord God. Illuminate it to me. I'm going to eat. This is where I get my sustenance. This is where I get my nourishment. This is where I get what can carry me through my day. Do you know that that bread could only stay there for a week? And then it had to be replaced? Some people don't even open this word in a week. You get it on Sunday morning, and then you want to go back the next Sunday morning, and you're eating stale bread because you haven't replaced it during the week. You haven't got fresh manna during the week. So the, the, the table of showbread. Table is always a, a picture of, of uh, communion, of, oh, communion. Can I tell you, when I open up that word and... 
And I invite him to illuminate him. I invite him to come and meet with me in that place. And, and he's always there. He's beat me to it. He, he wants to meet with me. He's the one that's initiated all of this. And, and, and when, I, when I go his direction, he is so happy to just meet with me and illuminate his word and, 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 and guide me into all truth. And there's such a place of communion. That's the table. A place that he says, come and sup with me. It's a place of communion, a place of fellowship with God. But it's the table of showbread. It's interesting. That, 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 that word showbread, it also means the bread of presence. <laughs> you see, when we begin to open up his word and study, and he gives us rhema revelation. We encounter his presence, his glory in that place. It, it's just such a beautiful thing. And then from, from the the. the the lampstand, the table of showbread, now we have the altar of incense. and The altar of, of incense, and remind me to go back to the, the, the bread in a minute. But the altar of incense is, is interesting. Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2 says, I will call to you, Lord, come quickly to hear me. Hear me when I call you to you. May my prayer be set before you like incense. So the, the, the incense in the Bible is a picture of prayers going up before the Lord. So what's interesting to me is the altar of incense was lit by coals from the brazen altar. Sacrifice. We bring a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice to, to, to spend time in prayer and to spend time in the word for some people. And, but, 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 but it was blood that was paid for to bring us into right relationship with Christ. And those coals were used to light this fire. There, I could, I could park there. We're way sh short on time, but I could park there and preach till I was blue in the face on that one. But Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. My temple, Rhea, I want you to be called a house of prayer. I want you to notice that this piece of furniture is the closest to the most holy place, to the presence of God. You are the closest to the presence of God when you are in prayer. God commanded the priest to burn incense on the golden altar every morning and every evening. I, I just wonder, we were talking last night, the difference between prayer and praying continuously. But the difference is in that. And, 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 but I, I just, it, it's interesting to me that they, they were commanded to burn incense, prayer, in the morning and in the evening. So now I've come into his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. I've given thanks to his name. I've identified with the cross of Calvary. I've moved to washing with the word. I've come in through the, the door into the presence of the sweet Holy Spirit, the anointing of a spirit, the illumination of a spirit. I'm reading his word, asking him to illuminate it through his spirit. And now I'm going to take that word and I'm going to go and I'm going to offer up prayers with that word. You see, if you are not praying his word, you are using idle, powerless words. Your little words do not have power in prayer. I'm sorry if that offends you. He says, if you ask anything, what? According to my will, it'll be given to you. What is his will? The word of God. 
And so our prayers should be, we should be praying the word of God. If you ask Dave, at any given point, I have a, on my bathroom mirror, on the door going out to my car, on my dashboard, on my phone, I'm always memorizing a new scripture because I understand that, that my words have no power. It is his word that never, ever, ever returns void. It always goes forth and prospers for the very thing it's sent to do. It will never come back void. And so when we are praying his word, there is power in that. He will always, angels hearken to his word. But we've got to get it in us. And so now, as, as I've asked him, as I sat with his word, I asked the Holy Spirit to illuminate it. Now, uh, the illumination of the word, the written word becomes rhema word. Logos becomes rhema. I get an aha moment, and it gets buried deep within me, and I grasp a hold of that word, and now I use that word to offer up a prayer. The Bible says, listen to this scripture, and I promise I'm closing. Listen to this scripture. He says find it. For the word of God is active and living. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the hearts and attitudes of the, the, the heart. We, we've talked about this a million times, but, but the Bible says that the word of God is a double-edged sword. That word double-edged means a two-mouth sword. Are you with me? He, he says, my word is yea and amen to those who believe, right? And, and what that means is when God spoke his word, he said, yes, I mean this. It got the yea. And he waits for us to give the amen, the so be it. When I'm preaching, nothing will get me preaching harder than if you say amen. Because what you're saying is truth, she's speaking truth, amen, so be it, yeah. And, and, and so I understand amen. And so the Bible says that God's word is yea and amen to those who believe. So when God spoke it one time, two-mouth sword, double-edged sword, two-mouth sword, God spoke it once, one mouth. Now when I take that, after I get rhema revelation over it, I've sat with the, with the word, I've asked the Holy Spirit to illuminate it, the written word has become... Uh, living word, rhema. I got a rhema understanding of it. Now, I'm, God mouthed it once. He said yes to this. I mean it. It's a promise. And I got a hold of it. And now I'm going to mouth it. And that's my prayer that's going up. And I'm going to say, give me a, give me a scripture. Um, uh, I don't have to be anxious about this thing, Lord. Through prayer, petition, and with thanksgiving, I can present this to you, and I can, I can cast my cares on you because you care for me. You're my burden bearer. You're going to take this thing off of me, so I'm presenting it to you right now. Here's this care, Lord. Here's this concern I have. And you promise, Lord, that the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Right there it is. So God said yes to that. He said, Rhea, you don't have to be anxious about anything, but through prayer, petition, and with thanksgiving, you present your request to me. And I'll take that, and I'll guard your heart and your mind with peace that passes all understanding. I read, I read it. The Holy Spirit illuminated it. I said God meant that. It was a promise. Now I'm putting my mouth to it. It becomes a double-edged sword. There's nothing more deadly than a double-edged sword. It cuts going in. It cuts going up. It cuts coming down. It's deadly. It is deadly to the enemy. And when you get rhema revelation in that holy place and you begin to pray it, watch out. Watch out. Because it becomes a double-edged sword against the enemy. 
and you can do some, some powerful warfare in, in your prayer time. All right. Oh, Lord. So then I'm running really fast. Then you hit another veil. That's the veil that Jesus, on the cross of Calvary, when he said, it is finished, the Bible said, and the, and the, the, the temple veil was rent from the top to the bottom. It's an extremely heavy uh, veil, impossible to tear, and, and it was torn from the top. It was a picture of God. Um, see, that, that veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Um, a priest could minister in that holy place, but only once a year could the high priest go in on the Day of Atonement uh, to that Holy of Holies. And he would go in and he would put the blood of, of a lamb on that, that atonement cover to appease God. And, and they, they were fearful in doing it because they, some, some uh, church history says that they would tie a rope around the high priest's leg, leg because if he did anything wrong, if he didn't wash well enough, if he didn't, whatever he did, if he had sin in his life, he, if he approached God incorrectly, he would die. And, and so they could, nobody could go in and get him out, and so they would pull him out with that string. That's not, I don't see it in scripture, but that's what history tells us. Um, but once a year, they could only go in that. But see, when Jesus on the cross of Calvary, when that veil got rent, what he was saying is that, that you can approach now with confidence and with boldness. The Bible says uh, we can come boldly now and find help in our time of need, of need. We don't need to worry about approaching God anymore. We don't have to come with fear anymore. We don't have to be afraid of his presence. That Jesus made a way for us to get there. He, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility so that we can come boldly into his presence and find help in our time of need. One writer says, as if God declared, open house, any man, every man come into my presence at all times because of the blood of my son, Jesus. Lord, there's so much more I want to tell you. But let me just tell you real quickly, in that Ark of the Covenant, that was where the presence of God, there's just so much, and I hate to rush. Um, but it's where the Shekinah glory was, where the presence of God was. And that's the whole point of this, is to get to that place of presence, that place of encounter. But there were three things kept in that Ark that was covered with the atonement cover and the blood. Um, in the Ark, anybody know? The Ten Commandments, so two tablets of Ten Commandments. What else? So the law was there. What else? A jar of manna. Manna was a picture of supernatural provision, but uh, the Israelites rebelled against that provision. But, yep, manna. What else? And Aaron's rod. And it was a budding. It was the, the I heard somebody say almond bud. Um, it was a budding, and it was a picture of power and authority. And, and it was, it's interesting to me. I could, I, I want to park there and preach, but I can't. And I hate to just give you the quick, the, um, you know, the quick version here, but it, it's so interesting to me uh, that all those things were pictures of, of rebellion. But they were covered with the atonement cover and the blood. And God covered them. That's what, that, that's, the, the, the blood covered over. And, and so God didn't see that rebellion anymore. He didn't see their inability to, to keep the law anymore. He, he didn't see the, 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 um, the, the any of their, uh, their rebellion at all. But instead, he turned it. 
Uh, Steve Smith says this, I love it. Manna became the supernatural provision of God, and when we enter that place of God's manifest presence, everything that takes place there is supernatural. The children of Israel could not make manna, only God had the recipe. God did for them what they could not naturally do for themselves. In the presence of Jehovah Jireh, there is supernatural provision. The rod of Aaron is symbolic of power and authority. And now God has given us power and authority. One of my favorite scriptures is you've given me power and authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all, not some, all the power of the enemy and nothing can harm you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I do believe that. And then the other, the other one is... Um, uh, is so power and authority, pr supernatural provision, and then the stone tablets of the law. It speaks uh, of God, the lawgiver, the governor of the nations. And, and, and we couldn't keep the law. The law was given to prove to us that we needed Jesus. And now he's given us the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says the same grace that saved you now enables you to obey. And you've given, been given grace for what? Obedience. You've been graced to be able to obey now. Can you do it perfectly? No, you never will. But the blood of Jesus covers you. You've been covered. So do you see it's such a beautiful picture? And, and so there's so much more that I love to tell you about that, and I, I feel bad just even going over it that quickly. But, but then the presence of God, that veil being rent, and now us being invited to come boldly into his presence. Can I tell you that every time I pray, I expect encounter. I expect it, because Christ paid a dear price for it. And so I'm not leaving with anything less. I'm not. And, and, and so I'm not quick to leave because I'm expecting encounter. Because he says the veil was rent so that I can come boldly into his presence and find help in my time of need. Any questions? Oh, there's so much. I, there's, I could teach weeks on this. Um, but we started talking out about revival. Psalm 85 says, will you not revive us again and let your people rejoice in you? I, I believe that revival is not a place that we go to encounter what God is doing in somebody else's life. I, I believe, honestly, with all of my heart, that every day can be a revival for you. He can revive you. And my daughter is a nurse, and she... Um, always calls and tells me when she has a code on her floor. She works ICU, so she has a lot of codes. And, and she loves nothing more than to revive somebody. Uh, you know, you revive somebody who's dead, and you bring them back to life. We shouldn't be dead. Church, I, I believe, is, and I don't mean dead spiritually. I don't mean dead to self. I mean, there's there's... We need to be awakened. It's a, the church. Nobody wants Jesus because we're a dead church. We should be experiencing Shekinah glory. We should be experiencing signs and wonders. The Bible says signs and wonders will follow, not might, will follow those who believe. I believe. I believe with every ounce of my being. And I'm expecting signs and wonders. The, the Bible says that, that you lay hands on the sick and they will recover. I expect people to recover when I lay hands on them. The Bible says that do not take the name of the Lord in vain. That, that, I used to think that that was, I love brewers. I mean, go to the brewers game, everybody's taking the name of the Lord in vain. I used to think that's what it was. It's not. If you look up that word in vain, it means uh, without power. Do not take the name of the Lord 
without power. Don't make it ineffective. When I lay hands on somebody and I speak the name of Jesus over them, I am expecting something to change because I do not take the name of the Lord in vain. When I speak the name of Jesus, I'm expecting change to take place because there's power in the name of Jesus. Every day should be revival. If we were living like we really should be living, if we lived understanding the cross, oh, Lynn, thank you. I looked up the revival definition, and it means to return to life, to become active and flourishing again. Church. <laughs> if we radiated, if we understood we were a portable tabernacle, and everywhere we go, we carry the presence of God with us, and I get to, you step into my life, and you encounter presence because I'm carrying it. Man, can we change the world for him. But it's because we're outer court Christians, not even aware we have the presence of God in us. Not manifesting him wherever we go. So, Father, bless these people. Make your face to shine upon them, Lord God. Illuminate their lives this week as they walk with you. Give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might know you better. Lord, give me a spirit of wisdom and revelation that I might know you better. I want to know you better, Lord. I pray for encounter. I pray, Lord God, for the glory to fall in each of their lives, that even as they go home tonight and lay their head on their pillow, Lord, that, that they would lay down and rest and sleep in peace. For you alone, O oh Lord, make them dwell in safety, that they would have such a sense of your presence even as they lay their head down and sleep. I pray for dreams. I pray for, for, for visions, Lord God. I pray for supernatural encounter that will change their lives. I pray for a hunger and a thirst after righteousness, Lord. Pray that you'd find us a people set on pleasing you, Lord God. Lord, your word promises that no good thing will you withhold from those who love you. I love you, Lord, and I pray good things on these people. I pray the blessing of the Lord be upon them that you bless them and they're coming and they're going. And Lord, that we truly would come to a place of deeper knowledge, deeper revelation of who you are, and a place of revival, Lord, inside of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.